Welcome to Beyond the Bio, where we share the stories of the extraordinary people at Bain. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Erica Soreau, Bain's Chief Marketing Officer. Erica is what we call a boomerang Bainy. After many years at Bain, including leading our retail practice, she moved to an operator role outside the firm before returning to Bain in 2019 to be our CMO. In addition to running Bain's marketing efforts, Erica also has some cool leadership roles inside the firm, which we'll talk about today as well. I'm excited for Erica to share her story and Bain experience with all of you today. Erica, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Keith. Thanks for having me. So, Erica, we always start with people's backgrounds so that everybody knows who they're listening to. Where did your interest in business come from? Were your parents an early influence? Was your family or friends an early influence? Tell us a little bit about that. I think that's the question that my family has actually been trying to figure out for years. I come from a family of educators and public servants who I think would have liked nothing more than to grow another educator or public servant. And instead, they had a 12-year-old daughter who, for fun, tracked the stock price of Coke and Pepsi and put it on a graph. You know, of course, at this time, I was looking things up in the newspaper, writing them down in pencil, putting them on physical graph paper and tracking the movement. So we don't know. (laughs) We don't know where it came from. But it's neat because you presumably from 12, you know, stayed involved in that through high school. So then when you went to college, did you know you wanted to major in business? Yeah. So college, I went to Duke. I chose the very logical business majors of Italian, which is really Italian literature and sociology. And to sort of round out the incredible focus that I had as an undergrad, I, I also added certificates in, which is effectively, it was anyway, a long time ago at Duke, minors in women's studies and markets and management. None of those to me really scream, maybe the last one scream business, but I'm also a little bit the only person I know who took the GMAT as a senior in college because I was so convinced in college that at some point I was going to want to go to business school. I didn't really know what business was, but I I took the GMAT anyway. Right. Now, I wasn't that ambitious to take the GMAT, but I knew I wanted to get an MBA, even though I wasn't sure quite what it was. And I knew that a lot of consulting firms paid for it. So I said, I want to do that. Now, tell me what they do again. Yeah, I was going to say, if you knew that consulting firms paid for it, that means you were one up on me because you knew what a consulting firm was. Right. But you ended up at Bain after Duke. So somehow along the way, you figured it out, maybe. I think somewhere along the way, I met people that I liked and had great conversations with them and coming out of those got a job offer. But, you know, I have hysterical stories of my first interviews where people were asking me to, you know, effectively derive profit. And I wasn't entirely sure (laughs) what that was. So I ended up doing a bunch of consulting interviews and I felt like the Bain ones, no one was holding against me that I didn't know business, but it was more about judgment and ability to solve a problem. And and I really liked the people. I mean, to my this day, it's probably still the sets of interviews that I left at the end thinking, wow, I really, I like those people. I learned a lot from that interview. I, I hope that when I interview someone, they at least like me. I don't know about learning. That might be too high of a bar, but like me. Maybe. I, you know, it's funny. I had the, a similar experience as an engineer who took no real business classes. And uh, I remember one of my case interviews was on insurance. And I swear we spent more than half the interview with him explaining to me what a premium was and how insurance worked. I think I impressed him by being a quick learner <laughs> because I certainly didn't share much insight. I might still need that uh, that intro. <laughs> yeah, but I, I do think a lot of people listening who are preparing for case interviews stress, and, and we tell them it's about what you learn and it's about what you can articulate as your thought process, how you structure problems, the content. Yeah, some people have that background, some people don't. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I always I always say to people, and I certainly think this is true from when I joined, but I also believe it's true now. 
we can't teach you to be a good problem solver, but we can right. teach you business. Right, right. You ended up joining Bain as an AC in, in the mid-90s, let's say, kind of around the same time I did in the Boston yeah. office. What were you like as an AC? And, and did you sort of settle into Boston and, and grow roots and become a, a, one of the you know, Celtics, Red Sox fans and never leave? So I will say importantly, I was born a Red Sox fan, which is unusual for someone from Tallahassee, Florida. I might be the only Red Sox fan on the panhandle of Florida, but that happened at the beginning. There are two different questions. What was I like as an AC and did I grow roots? I will simply say that my first meeting with my first case manager, they asked me to build a model and I had never done that before. And I was very excited and I, I printed it to take into the meeting and it was printed in horizontal paper. It was 12 sheets that I taped together because I had never built a model. Now you and I now have built models and know that, you know, years go across and everything else goes down like an income statement, but I had never done one of those before. So I put my years down the side and everything else out to the right. And turns out there's a reason that they're usually done vertically. So I was sent back to get help from another AC on my team who had gone to Wharton undergrad, who has since been, or ever since then, you know, 25 years later, been one of my very best friends. But she was the person who taught me on the job learning what it actually meant to build a model. I had no idea. You know, I moved to Boston in name, but in the four years that I lived in Boston, I did a transfer to Italy in my second year, which was a bit of an unusual circumstance, but perhaps the only person on the face of the planet to put an Italian major to use. I then transferred as a senior associate consultant to Sydney. And then, because I guess I hadn't had the bug enough, spent half of my fourth year as a consultant in London. So I probably was on the ground in Boston for two of the four years that I actually lived there. Right. So in London, they obviously speak English. In Sydney, I'll say they speak Australian. Shout out to Damien on the yeah. team down there. In Italy, were you prepared having studied Italian in school for that for that role? I thought so. I've certainly never been as fluent in Italian as I was in my life. And I very confidently strode into the motorcycle factory where I was working on the first day. And I just took a little notebook with me just in case there were any words I didn't know. And so, you know, I'm writing things down. And when I went and looked them up later, some of them were things that you would expect, like kickstand and fuel tank. I mean, don't you know about those? And then I got to this word that was reddito, and I had no idea what it was. And it turns out it means revenue which felt like a pretty important concept to um, to know about if you are an Italian speaker. So if you wanted to discuss literature or politics or art in Italian, I was probably in good shape, but I had a lot to learn about business Italian. Yeah, a lot of people ask us, you know, well, I, I kind of speak this language. I studied it in high school. You know, can I transfer to this office? I said, do you speak the business language <laughs> for, for that office? Yes, well, there's the great stories of people, you know, writing on a resume. I don't think we have ever done this, but writing on a resume that they're fluent in something and having their interviewer conduct the interview in that language, which is a great way to test it, but also to very quickly discover if you speak business Italian or not. Thankfully, no one did that to me before they put me on a plane. So, Right. Uh, thankfully for you. I'm not sure the client would have felt the same way, okay. but you do all those transfers, Erica, and you do end up going back to business school at Stanford. Did you know that you wanted to come back to Bain afterwards? 
actually quite the opposite. I tell people that when I went to business school, I was so grateful, you know, and I joined consulting. I obviously, I didn't know what consulting was. I figured this is where I'm going to go and figured out what I figured out in those first four years was that I had this real passion around retail and I wanted to do something in retail. And so I was quite positive when I went to business school that I would not be coming back, that I would be going and starting my career in retail. Again, no one in my family has any idea where my interest in retail came from. My parents couldn't enjoy shopping of any variety less than they do. So I went to business school. I had an offer from Bain on the table. I did not accept it. I spent the summer, this will date us again, Keith, sorry, but I spent the summer of 2000 working at a luxury e-commerce startup in LA I suspect a lot of people listening weren't alive in 2000, but for those who were, 2000 was sort of famously the first dot-com bust. So the company that I worked at as an intern, my first job was to update the financial model. I went in on the first day. Now I actually knew how to build a model, realized that the model had been fully hard-coded, so had to rebuild it and discovered an error in whoever had built it before that showed that the company was literally permanently structurally unprofitable. There was no path. And I had to go into the CEO and say, so just FYI, <laughs> you know, this company is structurally doomed. I'm not sure I used that word, but so it did in fact die at that summer with the bust. And I had every intention of then going and working in retail. And I had offers from a luxury house in Europe and from one of sort of the big U.S. apparel retailers. And so I was trying to decide, you know, do I move to Milan or do I move to San Francisco? Which is where I was. I was at Stanford. And I had this epiphany that I was like, wait, I'm going to go into these roles that are like strategy roles, rotational programs. Mm -hmm, and in mm -hmm. three years, if I'm lucky, I'm going to get kicked to something and instead of doing that, I could actually go to Bain and work on the problems that are too big or too hard for the strategy group. And in three years, be working with that person's boss's 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 boss and learning a lot more. So I then went through the logical choice of do I want to live in New York, London or L.A., chose New York, um, took my Bain offer and have been here ever since. That's fascinating. And and. We probably need to do a whole separate story with people that sort of were looking for jobs and transitioning during the dot-com era. It was a fascinating time. <laughs> it might be like a, a support group. It, exactly, exactly. Erica, let's talk about your post-MBA roles. You became a manager in 2003, and then you went on to run the retail practice at Bain, which is a very popular practice at Bain. You mentioned that your family probably couldn't say where your interest in retail came from. But like me, I know you had a lot of supporters along the way in the career journey. You know, how did you end up in retail and, and sort of grow your leadership chops in, in the practice? I mean, I, again, something that I think will sound crazy to anybody who is newer to Bain or newer to the industry. But when I became a manager, which would now be a senior manager in right. 2003, we didn't have practice areas. So, you know, it's sort of like, oh, I want to work on something, but there weren't really practice areas. And we kind of started forming them around that time. And the formation of the practice area is actually what made it possible for me to get involved. So I put my hand up to do a piece of internal work, meaning not for clients, but effectively research right. on retail. And in doing that, got to know two partners, one of whom ran our global retail practice. I ran the Americas for decades and has sort of built the entire retail business at Bain. And the other one is now our chief operating officer. But, you know, I, I worked for with these two and 
just sort of started learning my way around. And then like everything else, you know, the quite famous, is it luck or is it skill? <laughs> yes. We got a call in early 2004, I think, from one of the largest U.S. retailers who was thinking about outsourcing their teeny tiny e-commerce business to this new company called Amazon. Amazon at that point was like a $100 million business. And so they called and said, hey, could you guys come in and do a six-week piece of work to help us understand this? And we said, sure. Mind you, I had never actually done any of that work before. But we went in and within three weeks, we're kind of like, this is a terrible idea. Not only would this be quite difficult for your business, but you're leaving so much money on the table because we think this thing could be huge in 2004. You know, and ever since then, I've done nothing but but retail. But it sort of all stems with, I put my hand up in the right place at the right time and found people that I really liked working with that mentored me through and then pulled me in when we had a live situation. And then from there, you build expertise and you have the relationships. And But, you know, still to this day, 20, 20 years later, that's one of my fondest client experiences. Right. And knowing who those two partners are, they've been a factor in a lot of our, our career journeys at Bain. Yeah. You know, it, it is interesting and, and hard for people to understand how new the web was back then. I worked with some clients that were debating whether or not they should have a website to sell stuff. <laughs> right. well, I always like telling people, Keith, and I'm sure you do this too, when you really want to make yourself feel old, but I love telling people that as a new AC, we didn't have the internet. <laughs> Right. They're like, how did you do things? How did, what did you? And I'm like, no, 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 there was, and we didn't have Google until 2002. So yeah, you know, the library was like a place that you went and you got CD-ROMs and you read like microfiches and... It's a different time. Different sure. time. But I will always fondly remember someone being like, oh, we have this $100 million business. We're not really sure if it matters. Maybe we should outsource it. <laughs> That's fascinating. The Erica, as you grow the practice over time, what was that ride like? Retail is one of those practices where everybody has shopped at some point. So everybody has exposure to it, or at least some oftentimes inflated sense of understanding of how it works. But what stood out to you as, as the practice continued to grow and sort of take shape inside of Bain? Yep. Retail, I think, is even worse. It's not just that everyone has an experience, it's that everyone has an opinion. So, uh, you know, one of the most famous things that happens in board meetings at retail companies is someone will say, you know, my wife or my husband ordered this online. And it's like a customer support center rather than, than a board meeting. And every board has one of those people. Look, for me, being part of the growth of the retail practice is probably the thing at Bain that I'm the most proud of. The first partner meeting that I went to in the retail practice there, in the Americas, there were three of us, literally. And it was literally the head of our global retail practice, the head of our Americas retail practice, and me, the brand new retail partner. And when I left the firm, and I know we're going there, but when I when I left the firm at the end of 2015, I, you know, I ran my, and it gives me goosebumps, even as I'm saying it, I ran the America's retail practice meeting and there were like 70 people in the room. And I think now it's wow. like 140, but it's just, it's so gratifying, amazing, rewarding to see people that you have worked with since they were new ACs or new consultants sort of grow and develop into, you know, managers and partners and directors serving work and, having like this just an immense sense of pride. And so I feel lucky to have been along on the ride and played whatever role I did in doing that. But it is definitely out of the, you know, 27 calendar years that I have dipped my toe at Bain & Company, the That's thing that true. I'm most proud of. 
So as that practice grew and, and became even more successful over time, you ended up taking an opportunity outside of Bain. I did. I tell people that I am like the weirdest departure story ever because I was running our largest account with clients that I absolutely loved. And I was running a practice that I was so proud of that was thriving. And I left, which really makes no sense. And I am a risk averse person. So to sort of have everything at Bain going kind of in the, the Bain version of the world, right. like as well as it possibly could. Right for me to leave was kind of a, I don't know, it was the, definitely the bravest, maybe the dumbest, but also the the bravest <laughs> thing that I had done in my career. And I, I left because in my heart, I had always wanted to be an operator in a retail business. And one of the things that is great about consultants is we are great general managers, but we are not necessarily great functional managers, right? It's hard. No, no one was going to come in and hire me to be like the chief merchant or the chief financial officer at my level. If I had come in more junior, they might've, you know, said, we're going to grow you into this, but leaving as a, as a tenure partner, that's a different profile. And so I had this opportunity to go and become president of a company called Sweaty Betty that was in apparel, which has always been my true love, even though I spent half of my retail time in hard goods or grocery in athletic wear, which is a place that I personally spend a lot of my time and energy, like, you know, fitness and wellness with a Bain alum and with uh, backing by a private equity fund, El Catterton, that's super well-respected. And so it's to me a sort of everything clicked. And I got to a place that said, you know, if I, and I was 42 and I got to a place and said, look, if I'm not going to try this now, when am I going to do it? And again, I had amazing mentors that really encouraged me, which sounds maybe a little counterintuitive. Right. Because they had invested early in your career and you had been on this amazing ride and then you sort of tapped out and said, hey, I'm going to go do this other thing. Did they keep in touch with you while you were there? 100%. Yeah. In fact, I had probably four people from Bain and one person from one of my clients that I talked to a lot while mm-hmm. I was gone, just sort of like, okay, here's what you're probably doing now and here's what you want to think about. And it's the strangest place to feel supportive. But you know, the person who ran our global practice who we talked about before and that person who ran our America's business you know, the person who runs all of our partner talent, all right. of these people who are mentors and friends helped me leave and then stayed in touch while I was right. gone. And so you get your operator itch scratched. What did you learn as an operator that maybe was a little surprising? You know, I have to say it's such a good question, Keith. It's kind of embarrassing because I spent two and a half years prior to leaving, effectively being one of the members of the management team of one of the largest companies in the world and spent a lot of time with the CEO and really believed passionately and still do that we were working on the most important issues. You know, we had lots of teams running on strategy and on operational improvements and on, you know, digital transformation and on cost reduction. And man, we were in there, we were shaping what was happening in the markets. We were shaping how the business was getting run and, you know, I go to my my business that was significantly smaller and I called the CEO after my first week and I said, I have to tell you, I'm embarrassed. I've just realized how much of your time you spend making decisions that we are not involved in. Like just the number of decisions that an operator makes every day is astounding. And they're not all the types of decisions that we think about a lot at Bain. They're not necessarily big ones. They're certainly not ones that have any data, but just people are making 
dozens of decisions a day that I just didn't, I didn't appreciate. Mm -hmm. We're both in functional leadership roles at Bain now. And I think about how that would affect me as I work with clients now, knowing what I know. And I can only imagine what it's like out really being an operator with profit and loss all rolling up to you. It's not only profit and loss, it's like benefits. Like it, because suddenly you now have profit and loss, but also all of those things that I'm used to someone and I, I'm working at a, you know, a wellness company that didn't have healthcare that was good enough for my New York-based team to have New York-based doctors. They had to take a bus to New Jersey. And I was like, well, that seems bad. It's fascinating. And, and I, I always, you know, we have the externship program here at Bain that gives people a chance to see what it's like working on the operating side. And I think some of the people that I've talked to when they come back, actually all of the people I talk to when they come back, just say, I don't think I fully appreciated what it's like, like where everything you know, we don't get to just skim on the most important issues. Right. Every right. issue <laughs> is on right. my radar. Right. And it's like the thing of, you know, we, we always, one of the things we talk about a lot is think like an owner, but you know, I, the company I worked at was, was pretty small. And so when I walk through the kitchen in New York and there's like trash, I will throw the trash away because that's <laughs> as, as like, as an operator, you're like, if who's going to do this? Like someone <laughs> has to do it. And there's not like a magic person out there. So decisions and sort of being much more pragmatic about or, or realistic about how things actually get done. And I'm so grateful for those learnings. I think it's made me a better everything. So Erica, let's, let's talk about your return to Bain in 2019 as our chief marketing officer. You obviously said you had kept in touch with us. A lot of people do when they leave. What attracted you back and what were you looking forward to when you took this role? So Keith, there will be echoes here of the story I told about business school, which is I loved Bain when I left. As I said, I was like in this great spot. I definitely did not believe I was coming back because I really wanted to be an operator. And so I spent my time looking for operator roles. And I had defined in my head that operator roles were running companies. And by the way, I took a year and a half off, which was like also the greatest thing I've ever done in my entire life, which is a whole separate podcast series. So I took time off. I didn't do any soul searching. I didn't do any blogging. I didn't do anything. I just sort of hung out. And then when I came back up, I was like, you know what? I still, I want to be an operator and I want to look for something to run. And so I you know, do what you do, you network, you talk to recruiters, you go through all these things. And I ended up with a couple of really interesting opportunities that when it came down to the decision time, weren't right. And they weren't right because of funky or the potential for funky people dynamics between either founders or investors. And I, I just didn't want to do it. And so I had this kind of epiphany of, oh my goodness, maybe actually what I care more about is working with people that I like and respect and that are smart more than running something. And so I'm going to redefine my job as an operating role with people that I like and respect with a brand, because I'm a consumer retail person, a brand that I believe in. I'm like, I don't know what that's going to be. And within a week, I was on the phone with Manny, our CEO, and, and Russ, our chief talent officer, saying, maybe you'd like to be the CMO at Bing. Luck, skill, this one, luck, totally luck. This kind of works out. And what was your, what is, what was your mission when you came back to Bain as a CMO? I mean, I think for the most astute listeners, Keith, no one will have heard in the story that we've discussed thus far, marketing experience. And so the choice of me as a marketer seems quite strange. I really believe that I have only one mission and one path to deliver that. My mission 
is to make marketing a great commercial function at Bain. We are lots of wonderful things. We develop people. We solve tough problems. At the end of the day, we are a B2B business. We are creating relationships. We are selling work that pays for itself 10 times over, but selling work to companies. And if you look at great B2B organizations, they have great B2B marketing that is commercially minded. And so the one and only reason that I'm in the chair is because I speak Bain commercial. I know how we do our work with our clients. I know what matters. I know I know how to think like the people that are running the practices and the accounts. And I've mm-hmm. known most of those people for 20 something years. So that's sort of my mission. Right. And my way of doing that is surround myself and have those people surround themselves with people who are deep marketing experts. And so that's what we're doing is we're, we are building teams of people with lots of marketing experience pointed at Bain, which is a really fun and energizing thing to do. You know, Erica, the, the CMO role is probably the one people notice most when they go to your bio online. But as part of that responsibility, you also sit on Bain's Global Operating Committee. What can you share with people about that? Because from where I sit, it's not something that we put on the headlines on the marquee. We don't, you know, they're not issuing press releases. But a lot of what makes Bain a great place to work in a focused strategic firm, not just strategy firm, but strategic, is driven by the Global Operating Committee in a lot of ways. So how does that, talk talk a little bit about that if you can. I appreciate you saying that, Keith. I mean, look, I think one of the things that many of us who work at Bain don't think about but certainly people who are thinking about coming and joining Bain and and going through interview processes is we're a company. You know, we just like all of our clients, we we need to be run. And so our global operating committee is our executive committee. It was actually crucially important to me that I be part of that. that I didn't want to be CMO without that because part of the reason that I wanted to do what I wanted to do was I wanted to be part of a great leadership team. And so I don't think I would be doing this job if I wasn't part of the leadership team But that is hugely energizing. And that's what makes this an operator role, not a client-facing role, is that I'm in decisions, I'm in discussions about things that have sometimes nothing to do with marketing. How do we think about our talent? How do we think about our client priorities that we're going to go and pursue? How do we think about the difficult trade-offs that every company has to make between where to put time and energy? And definitely one of the most energizing parts of my job is the privilege of being part of the team that runs Bain. Is that something that's similar to being on a board? Because Bain has a board as well. Help help people understand how that, how the GOC, as we call it internally, interacts with the board because most people sort of just blend that. Oh, well, that sounds a lot like what the board does, Erica. What's the difference? Great question. And again, I will point to other companies as the role model. So the operating committee, the executive committee, reports to the board in that, The board is responsible ultimately for setting the strategy of Bain. So if we're talking about the sort of five to 10 year or longer strategy for Bain, the board sets that. And the operating committee is responsible for coming up with the plans to deliver against that. Again, very much like what you would see in a public company board where one company sort of own one part of the group owns the operating results and the other one is sort of doing the direction setting. I think the thing that's unique here is that our board is entirely made up of Bain people. And so you end up in this very interesting and actually kind of wonderful check and balance scenario, which is that everyone on our operating, everyone on the board reports to a member of our operating committee in their day job, but everyone on the operating committee is ultimately accountable to the board from a governance perspective. 
Right. And just knowing uh, a lot of you personally over the last several years, decades of my career, I imagine it's a pretty lively room to be in when we're discussing things, which is awesome. (laughs) It is super lively. As you can imagine, putting 20 people together, which I think is, I'm going to be off by a couple, but putting a bunch of people together at the board level and a bunch of people together at the operating level to debate strategy when you now have a room full of 30 strategy consultants is a it's a spectacle to be seen. No, but I, I I only bring it up because I think that it isn't one of those things that people talk about a lot, but I do think the people that are in the room helping us define who we want to be in the next three years, in the next five years, in the next 10 years is important. And it's important for people to understand who's in that room and get a sense of, wow, if these are the people that are in the room, we're in good hands. And I know we all we all feel that way. The last leadership role that I wanted to talk about is one that really our senior people get to see you in, but you're also on something we call the investment committee. And I thought maybe we could spend a minute or two on the podcast talking about that, because from where I sit in my recruiting role, it is something that's pretty unique to Bain. And it's a really unique opportunity for people and for their families to to create opportunities for investment in a way that, that wouldn't exist in a lot of places. So can you share with people a little bit about what the committee does and and why that's important for people? Sure, I'm happy to. And maybe for clarification, we actually, Keith, we have two different types of investment committees at Bain. We have one group, which is really thinking about investments on behalf of Bain & Company. What are the companies we should be looking to buy to, to advance our objectives in ESG or in digital or in analytics or in some of our practices? Or what are the investments that we should be making, minority investments in companies that we believe are important partners? I'm also on that investment committee, but I think the one that you're asking about is mm-hmm. um, is the investment committee that actually makes decisions on behalf of our senior leadership team about personal investments. So this is a, a group of people, I believe there are seven of us, who have the mandate to review deals, private equity deals that our private equity practice has worked on and decide if we would like to, on behalf of partners who are committing their own money, make an investment. So we meet a couple times a month and literally have our best private equity transactions that we have supported through our case teams and diligence coming forward and pitching to the committee that this would be a good place for partner money. And the seven of us are stewards of how do we want to spend not Bain's money. This is how do we want to spend our individual senior leadership money. So, you know, anyone who's eligible to invest, I said partners, it's not just partners, it's our leadership team, but people Mm -hmm. who are making individual investment decisions, how do we want to spend their money and how do we think we will get them the highest returns? And in that role, you know, is that something that that you have investment experience in? Because we're also, you know, we were talking about your, I'll say, questionable marketing background from from your studies in school. But uh, kidding aside, you mentioned that you were investing at 12. I assume you've learned a lot since then. But is that, you know, do you play a role in there because of your investment experience or because of your background or because you don't have that? You know, how do, how do you end up on that committee? Uh, great question. I can't answer how you end up on the committee. I think like many other things at Bain, that you will appreciate, you are voluntold, and congratulations, you're doing something. But I am very explicitly on the committee because the committee is by design built on having a balance of people who see thousands of deals a year, which is our private equity partners, 
and people who don't and who do not have relationships with the funds so that we make sure that we are bringing both pattern recognition of I've seen this deal 15 times and here is how it's going to play out. And that comes from our private equity team and the um, independence that comes with making sure that we're not making an investment because of a commercial relationship with a client, that we're making an investment because this is really something that objectively we think is a good investment. And I, of course, am not saying that my private equity colleagues don't have objectivity, nor am I saying I'm a complete idiot on (laughs) pattern recognition, (laughs) but I think we believe that the balance is, is really important. Another example of where a series or a set of diverse voices in the room probably gets the team to a better answer more consistently. 100%. Awesome, Erica. As we wrap up this discussion, and I have like 100 other questions I could ask and we'd be here for the rest of the day, what has you excited about the years ahead? Uh, you know, We talked about some of the, the three sort of big leadership roles that you have. I work pretty closely with your team and you're, you're continuing to build a great team. But what gets you excited when Monday comes? There's not a lot to be excited about most Mondays, but as far as Mondays are concerned, what gets you excited? Yeah, okay. Let's pretend that you didn't say Monday. No one likes Mondays. I agree with that. We are, as a firm, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. The industry has changed so much, Keith, from when you and I joined. The level of expertise, the complexity and the composition of our teams of people who have deep, deep knowledge and deep, very specific skills who, you know, didn't look at all like my educational background coming in. And frankly, with that, problems that are so much harder than they used to be. Uh, You know, I sometimes describe to people what some of the work was when I started and, you know, it could be solved by waiting all night for an Excel table to concatenate two columns of data and looking like a hero. And, you know, that's sort of table stakes, like phase zero. You can do it on your phone now. Right, exactly. (laughs) I'm sure you can. So I get excited because I think the problems that our clients are wrangling with are harder than they ever have been before. I think we as a firm are approaching the world with so much more swagger and confidence than we have in the past. And that shows up in the M&A that we're doing as a firm. It shows up in the deep expertise and skills that we have. And it shows up in these tools, you know, tools that we're actually building. And so I love seeing Bain on a, a more, you know, a swaggerful posture of telling, this is the part that gets me energy in my job, telling stories about great client impact, naming client names, getting clients to, to talk about us and making commitments around, you know, what are we going to do around diversity, equity, and inclusion that makes our teams better? What are we going to do to make sure that we have a planet left for our families? And how do we do those in a way that we are setting examples for our clients about what a great company we are? Again, back to this notion of we're actually a pretty great company. You know, we get recognized again and again and again as a great place to work. I tell clients that. I want clients to know that our teams are happy. I think it makes us better, more effective, and just kind of more optimistic partners for solving super tough problems. Erica, I would underscore all of that. It certainly resonates with my experience. It's funny because in some ways our humility gets in the way of us expressing the swagger that we've have rightfully earned over our 49 years as a firm. So glad to be a part of that. Glad to have you on the podcast today. Uh, We are long overdue to have done this. My absolute pleasure. All right. Take care, Erica. And thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.